Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at uh, verses uh, 7 to 12 again. I'm constantly amazed at how slow people are, including myself, to see the implications of things. We're slow to see the implications of our actions. We don't even think about the consequences of what we're doing. We, we just shoot from the hip, and impulsively do something without thinking about what road that puts us on and where it's going to take us. In the same way, we don't see the implications of the things that we claim to believe. We embrace words and ideas without ever really thinking if we're willing to live with the consequences of those things. We're really willing to live out all the implications of those things. We do this in every area of our life, but especially we see it in, in regard to our faith. It's possible to sit in church Sunday after Sunday, week after week, and recite familiar words, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, familiar passages of Scripture, and not even think of the awesome implications of what we're saying. Well, that's where we are this morning as we return to the same text we were in last week that we didn't quite finish. As we mentioned back then, the Apostles' Creed, which is about as basic a statement of the Christian faith as we have, says in part that we believe Jesus Christ is God's only Son, our Lord, and among other things, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. How easily those words roll off our tongue. Yet here in these verses, James is taking the time to unpack some of the implications of that. Specifically, of that truth that Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, is coming again to judge. We saw one of the great implications last week. We're going to see another one today. Well, let's read the text again. I'll start with verse 7, and we'll read down through verse 12. Be patient then, brothers until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard about Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Or you will be condemned. Last week we heard the first point, <clears throat> be patient, because Jesus is coming. Be patient. But we skip two verses, verse 9 and verse 12, and those two verses teach us another truth, actually kind of the opposite, not a call to patience, but a warning against the things that come out of our impatience. So our, our second truth, we had one point last week and 
the second one this week, although we have some sub-points here, but the, the second great truth that we're going to talk about this morning is this, hold your tongue. Jesus comes to judge. Be patient, Jesus is coming last week. Hold your tongue. Jesus comes to judge. You remember when you were growing up and you got to that real sassy age when your mouth got real fresh with your mother and your dad, when respect virtually disappeared from the way you talked and acted. During that time, if you grew up in a home that was anything like mine, you might hear some words like this. You had better watch your mouth, young man. Your father's coming home. Maybe you didn't. Maybe your mom didn't ever say that to you. Uh, I heard those kind of things. I think my wife probably said those kind of things uh, to our son. Well, that's kind of what James is saying here to us as God's children. He said, you better watch your mouth. You better hold your tongue. Your father is coming. Jesus is coming to judge. In light of Jesus' coming, we're called not only positively to be patient, but we're warned negatively to avoid, to stop the sins that would turn his coming from, into a woeful day of judgment instead of a joyous day of deliverance. Now James mentions only two sins, two that he's been for the kind of things that he's been talking about throughout the book, two sins of the tongue. Uh, let's talk about each one of them separately. First of all, don't grumble. Don't grumble. You see it there in verse 9? <coughs> don't grumble against one another, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. When people face a great challenge, it's amazing how much we can uh, accomplish but take away the sight of the goal, take away uh, some mission that we're on, some great thing that we're working toward, and just settle down and be comfortable in the now, and it just seems that it's human nature to begin to tear one another apart. And so here James is warning us that if we lose sight of Christ's coming, that if we lose sight of what we're here for, if we lose sight of where we're going, we lose the big picture and the challenge to rise to the occasion, we will grow impatient with our situation, and, and we will grow dissatisfied, and having no one to blame, we will turn on each other. This is the other side of the call to patience. It's the opposite of the patience of the farmer. It's the opposite of the faithfulness of the prophets. It's the opposite of the long-suffering of Job. Instead, here we have the person who realizes that everything is not going as, he, as we wished it would. We realize that the perfection of God's kingdom has not happened yet. We realize that we are getting tired of waiting, and it is then that we begin to chafe under the pressures of all the things in the world that are not right. And of course, there are always things that are not right. There's always injustice. There are always things that are not fair. There's always people, there are always people who are against us. Our, our, our labor never produces what we wished it would. We, we always have desires that are unfulfilled. We always get criticism that we don't deserve plus the discriticism that we do deserve, and we always have weaknesses that we don't seem to be able to get on top of. There are all kinds of things wrong. And so after a while, we get tired of living with all that. We get tired of all those loose ends. We become impatient, tired of waiting, tired of doing without what I want, tired of doing without what my heart longs for. 
And then where does that break out? What's the first symptom of that? We grumble. We grumble. We criticize, we find fault, we lash out at one another. We grumble. We learn by experience the sad truth of a little poem I found in my reading. It goes like this. To walk in love with saints above will be a wondrous glory. To walk below with saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Murmuring is another word that's used to translate that. Oh, it's been with God's people for centuries. In my personal devotional reading, I'm reading through Exodus right now. And I just have finished going all through that whole thing in the, in the desert, in the exodus out of Egypt as God delivered his people and then led them through the desert toward the promised land. And it's amazing. I was, I was struck by it again as I read and I've read this so many times, but I was struck by it again how much God's people grumbled. They were not even across the Red Sea yet. They saw Pharaoh's army coming, and they started in. They said to Moses, well, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. Crumbling. Oh, but God miraculously delivered them through the Red Sea, miraculously destroyed Pharaoh's army that pursued them, and they cheered and they sang for joy in song of Moses. You would think now they would never forget what a great deliverance. They would live in gratitude from the rest of their lives, right? Three days, <laughs> three days, they traveled, and they didn't find water, and listen to what they said. So the people grumbled against Moses. Say, well, what are we going to drink? Well, God brought them to water, and he turned the bitter water into sweet water for them. But it wasn't long before they ran out of food, and they, they started in again. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Give me a break. They were slaves making bricks. But you, Moses, have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Grumbling. Self-pity. Murmuring. So God gave them manna. It rained bread every morning. Wow, they must be great, grateful and thankful now, right? No, before long they got thirsty again. They grumbled against Moses, we read. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Well, God gave them water from a rock. But that didn't satisfy. The next time they were thirsty, they were doing it again. And he gave them his law, and he led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And they grumbled about their hardship. And he gave them manna every morning for 40 years. And they grumbled and said, but we don't have meat. He spoke to them through Moses. And they said, well, why do we have to listen to Moses? We ought to know God ourselves just as well. 
God promised them the land of Canaan for the taking, a land filled with milk and honey. And they said, oh, we can't go up there. There's giants in there. They refused to go. Again and again and again, they grumbled and complained. They tested God's patience by their constant discontentment. That's what James is talking about here. Hold your tongue. Stop grumbling. In case you didn't notice, this is still with us. Sometimes it's just a little impatient rumbling that goes on in a church. Sometimes it breaks out in a poisonous venom that destroys churches, but this grumbling is the ugly underside of most every church. While people labor to serve the Lord together, while people give of their time and their money and their energies to do the Lord's work, and while people serve the best of their ability, giving up their time and uh, trying to lead and trying to be responsible, while all of this is going on with great zeal and self-sacrifice, there are always a few who are grumbling. Grumbling. Things aren't perfect. I didn't like the way this was done. I didn't feel like this was fair. Petty things, normally. But people who will not be satisfied, they're always with us in the church, the grumblers. Oh, but it's not just the church. We have them in our homes, too. Maybe you've noticed in your home. I must tell you, sometimes as I talk to people with problems in their families, it's hard for me to fathom. I see people whom God has blessed with a wonderful family. People who have pretty good health. People who have plenty of food to eat every single day of their life. Who have clothes to wear. Who, who, who have more luxury items than 90% of the people on the face of the earth. And still grumble. Because somebody has it better. Or because I don't feel fulfilled with all these things. Or because I didn't get what I wanted. And the grumbling like venom poison homes until they're destroyed well I'm not exaggerating destroyed destroyed by divorce or by alienation or by bankruptcy or by kids leaving angry at the parents or 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 by suicide just destroyed by people turning away from their faith angry at God I've had enough never coming back destroyed The victim of unchecked grumbling. Grumbling. Now, grumbling is so common that we're tempted to say, what's the big deal? Everybody does that. I mean, everybody complains. Even as I prepare to preach this, I mean, I can't preach on this. I mean, everybody complains. I complain. Everybody grumbles, right? It's not that big of a deal. Oh, yeah? Let me read verse 9 again. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Vivid picture here. 
Picture yourself at work and you're standing around the coffee pot pouring yourself another cup of coffee and one of your fellow workers is there and you begin to talk about what's going on, <coughs> sharing your concerns about what's wrong with the place and what should have been done that didn't get done and who's doing what and in other words you're grumbling, right? And uh, you kind of feed on each other's discontentment, that's how this always works and so after a while everyone and Everything is a reason for discontent, and you unleash your frustration on all these things. And, and uh, as you turn to go with your cup of coffee, still waxing eloquent about all the shortcomings of your colleague, and especially what's wrong with the boss, that old so-and-so, you turn and stop in dead sense, for there he stands in the doorway. And he's heard the whole thing. There's no good thing to say at that point. What seemed like harmless grumbling could cost you your job. Oh, that sinking feeling. That's the picture here. Only it's not your job, it's judgment day in view and the one standing in the doorway listening is the God of grace who's lavished blessing on you. As you complain and moan and gripe Hold your tongue. Stop your grumbling. The judge stands at the door. Oh, we may dismiss grumbling as just venting our feelings, a healthy thing. Oh, no. God warns us of judgment. In 1 Corinthians 10, you might want to turn back here for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here God tells us why he recorded all of Israel's experience for us in the desert. <clears throat> he talks about his deliverance of them out of Egypt and the manna and the water from the rock. And picking up with verse 5, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5. <clears throat> Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, they were, them, were, some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage and indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. No idolatry, no sexual immorality, no testing of God. Those things bring judgment. Look at the next verse. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happen to them as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Oh. Oh, grumbling is a little bigger deal than we thought. It's there with idolatry worshiping other gods. It's there with sexual immorality. It's there with challenging God, putting him to the test. And grumbling, 
discontent, lack of gratitude. Oh, in contrast, the Apostle Peter tells us that in the light of the nearness of Christ's coming, it ought to produce just the opposite in us. Let me read a couple of verses from, from 1 Peter. The end of all things is near, he says. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each should use whatever gifts he has given. He has been given to, to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. Love one another. Serve one another. Minister God's grace to one another. Show hospitality to one another. And no grumbling. Why? The end of all things is near, Peter said. The end is near. You see, there's no energy for grumbling. The Lord's coming. There's work to be done. His people need to be nurtured. They need to be built up. They need to be cared for. There's no time. Stop the grumbling. Hold your tongue. Well, then there's a second exhortation, back to James 5. <coughs> second exhortation about holding our tongue, again with the, Lord, with the Lord's return in view, and that's the exhortation, do not swear. We see that down in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. You remember the last time you got really impatient, had your patience tested? And what happened to your speech? When you really got provoked, I've had it. It's not going the way it's supposed to go. And what happened to your speech? James says, the Holy Spirit says, watch your tongue. Do not swear. Do not swear. Now, actually, there are a couple of different issues that are being dealt with here. You see, the Bible doesn't speak of swearing just as vulgarity or obscenities, as we tend to think of swearing. The issue of swearing uh, here is much bigger than that. Actually, there are two related uh, problems, things similar to what Jesus discussed in his Sermon on the Mount. First of all, don't swear here means that our language must be completely free of any misuse of God's name. Our language must be free of any misuse of God's name. That's what it means. Don't swear. <coughs> this is the problem when we curse someone or curse something. It's God's creation that we curse. God's creature who we're cursing. This is the problem when we call on God to curse. Or we use his name as a curse. Well, it violates the command to not use his name in vain. This is the problem when we use expletives which walk around the use of God's name by using some euphemism. We wouldn't come right out and say, Oh, God is a curse, is an expletive. But we might say, for heaven's sakes. It's a euphemism. 
Or we might say, gosh, or gee, or golly, or guy, or expletives that come close to speaking God's name, but try to walk around it. Well, the point is, our language must be free of that. Our language must be free from every misuse of God's name. Instead, he says, say yes when you mean yes, and say no when you mean no. Now, I must tell you, our language is so far from such simplicity that most of us could probably hardly even imagine what that would sound like. We, we speak with so many expletives. We have so much slang in our language that that kind of talk that just simply speaks without any of that will probably sound foreign to us, but God is so jealous of the holiness of his name. He says, I don't want you to swear. I don't want, even want you to come close to the misuse of my name. That's one point here, what it means to not swear. The other point, don't swear means our language must be completely truthful. Must be completely truthful. In James's day, they had uh, uh, a practice, uh, I guess a cultural little practice, uh, an unwritten system of how they did things, uh, a system of swearing oaths. Simple truth was not to be found just to say this is the way it is, and that's, that was true. No, if you, to really believe someone that what they said needed to be confirmed with an oath so that would swear to its truthfulness. In other words, you wouldn't just say, this is true. But you would have to say, I swear on a stack of Bibles, this is true. Oh, then he really means this is true. Because just to say this is true doesn't necessarily mean anything. But if he swears by something, God or God's name or what, the temple or heaven or earth or all the things that mentions here, then, then that, uh, oh, okay, then that's true truth. As if there were untrue truth, right? Unfortunately, like so many little things, the rabbis especially had devised a little system to get around some of this. And they had subtle distinctions between oaths that were binding oaths and other oaths that were not binding. So, for example, if you swore by Jerusalem that this is true, well, that was binding. But only if you were facing Jerusalem when you swore that. If you were facing the other way, it was, didn't really matter. Kind of like when you were a kid, you said, I promise, and you had your fingers crossed. Doesn't really matter. Now, to us, it sounds silly. You know, Jesus talked about swearing by the gold on the altar, or the altar, the city, or the, the hill on which you stand, all those things, heaven and God's throne. And, well, those are all distinctions that people were making between what, what is a legitimate oath that really binds me to truth and what is a way out. You see, what started as a way to confirm the truthfulness of speech by swearing an oath became another way to deceive. And what is lost in all of that is truth. Simple, straightforward truth. 
Now, we don't have that kind of a system of swearing. But we do play fast and loose with the truth. What kind of truth you tell people depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to your best friend, you tell one kind of truth. If you're selling your used car, you may have a different standard of truth. Or if you're trying to get rid of a telemarketer, you may have yet another standard of truth. Think of how, I mean, we, we, we even have names, we talk of spin doctors. What does that mean? Who are the spin doctors of our society? They're the ones who can take the facts and make them say something different than what they say. Deception. Playing fast and loose with the truth. You don't think it's a problem? How many people do you know that you would stake your life on the fact that if they said they will do something, they will do it no matter what it costs them? You will bet your life on it. Whoa. Not many of those. How many people do you know that you could say they have never told me something that was not true? They have never exaggerated it or told me less or put their spin. They have always spoken plainly the truth to me. I don't know if I know such a person, do you? I'm, I'm not such a person. But folks, in Christ we have become the people of the truth. Our Savior is called the way, the truth, and the life. His word is truth, and we live according to it. So James says, this is amazing, but he says, above all. What? Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Truth. Or you will be condemned. That's Judgment Day he's talking about. Think of the rationale of this. It's the devil who is called the deceiver. It's the devil who is the father of lies. Now can you imagine Jesus returning to deliver his people who he saved out of the devil's dominion of darkness, to deliver his people and to bring judgment on that old deceiver, that old father of lies, and to find his people lying, deceiving, twisting the truth, exaggerating, putting their spin on things to deceive, playing word games to veil simple honesty, doing the very things that the devil does when he comes to deliver his people? Oh, don't deceive yourself. Such people will not be counted among God's own children. Oh, no, we're not saved by keeping the rules, but neither did God save us to live like the devil. Watch your tongue. God is a God of truth, and that must be reflected among his people. Don't swear. Don't misuse God's name. Don't play fast and loose with the truth, for Jesus is coming again. A little grumbling, a little swearing, 
an expletive here, there, a little loose with the truth. What does it all matter? Well, we seem to think that if we quietly all agree to not challenge one another, to look the other way, it'll all be okay. But here God warns us from heaven. Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, he will judge in truth and absolute righteousness every word that has been spoken. Now, if we really believe in him, if we really believe he's coming, then some implications follow. We will be patiently faithful, as we said last week, and we will not be practicing the things of impatience that we've seen this week. Grumbling against God and one another. Swearing, misusing God's name, compromising his truth. Now I know that that standard of judgment, the standard of righteousness, seems impossibly high. I mean, if, if we take this literally, that God is going to come and judge these things, who could possibly stand in judgment? That's exactly right. Who could possibly stand? No one. And so, this drives us to see how desperately we need the Savior. We can't just ignore it because the standard is so high. It should drive us to Jesus to realize we have nothing apart from him. He alone can clothe us in in such righteousness. He alone can forgive all the innumerable transgressions that we already have marked up. He alone can change this thing in us, this grumbling, swearing tongue. In him alone is there any hope. Well, this is not simple moralisms, try harder. This is a call to the Savior, for he alone can give such salvation. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which cuts right through all of the facade of our culture, where we agree to just look the other way. We agree to not make any big deal of certain things, even though perhaps we know better. Thank you, Lord, that you have dared to speak honestly to us. And, Lord, we find ourselves coming up short And so we're driven back to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, if we have to stand in our own righteousness, we have no hope. Lord, unless you have saved us, unless we stand in your righteousness, unless you have forgiven, unless you've paid for all of our transgressions, Lord, we're hopelessly lost. We admit we don't meet your standard. And Lord, unless you change us from the inside out, we will never be conformed to your image. So Lord, increase our faith. Lord, cause us to know that you've lavished grace on us and to respond with great gratitude to live out the implications of it. We pray in your strong name, Lord Jesus. Amen.